six foot six above sea level. I grab my mic because I like to take it to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. Thank you for listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM. We are Madison's listener-supported community radio. It is Thursday, June 30th, 2022, and I'm your host, Karma Chavez. Glad to be back here with you. Uh, thanks, Rochelle, for bringing me from Austin to Madison once again today. So healthy eating is something that many affluent people take for granted in countries like the United States, even as food insecurity is an immense problem here and around the globe. Inequitable access to safe, healthy, and affordable food is not only a problem that falls along class lines, but it is a racialized problem with Black, Latinx, and Indigenous people suffering most. In a new book by Christopher Carter, called The Spirit of Soul Food, Race, Faith, and Food Justice. Carter historicizes and theorizes the problems he sees associated with one of the most prized African-American food traditions, soul food. Soul food has played a critical role in preserving Black history, community, and culinary genius. It is also a response to and marker of centuries of food injustice. Given the harm that our food production system inflicts upon Black people, what should soul food look like today? Carter's answer to that question merges a history of Black American foodways with a Christian ethical response to food injustice. Carter reveals how racism and colonialism have long steered the development of U.S. food policy. The very food we grow, distribute, and eat disproportionately harms Black people, specifically and people of color among the global poor in general. Carter reflects on how people of color can eat in a way that reflects their cultural identities while remaining true to the principles of compassion, love, justice, and solidarity with the marginalized. Carter's provocative book has already received rave reviews, with one reviewer noting, Carter's excellent book breaks important new ground at the crucial nexus of race, religion, food, animals, and the environment. It is essential reading for anyone seeking to address this cutting edge territory, which is crucial for the futures of human and more than human life. Dr. Christopher Carter is assistant professor, assistant chair, and department diversity officer of the Department of Theology and Religious Studies at the University of San Diego. Dr. Carter's teaching and research focuses on philosophical and theological ethics, black and womanist theological ethics, environmental ethics, and animals and religion. Dr. Carter is also a pastor within the United Methodist Church and currently serves as an assistant pastor at Pacific Beach United Methodist Church. He is the author of the book we'll discuss today, The Spirit of Soul Food, Race, Faith, and Food Justice, which came out last year from the University of Illinois Press. Pastor Carter, welcome to A Public Affair. Yeah, oh, thank you for having me. I just, uh, I couldn't help but smile when you listen to all those titles. I was like, I, I, I got too many jobs. That's all that made me think. I got I, too I, many jobs. I, it does, when you hear it spoken out loud, it does sound like it's too much. I'm sure it feels like that in real life, too. Um, so we're uh, excited to have you here today. I just want to uh, make a note that folks who are listening, if you want to join our conversation, uh, call us at 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can always post to our Facebook page, A Public Affair, and you can tweet us at Wart Talk, and we'll get your uh, questions or, or comments on the air here. So I guess, uh, Christopher, I wanted to start with the opening line of your book, which is, I did not want to write this book. Uh, will you explain why you didn't want to write this book? Yeah, it, it's a, I was, it was a moment of honesty, I think, <laughs> just, just real sheer honesty. Um, you know, my vision for this particular project started out just very differently. Um, I, my initial idea for um, even exploring the topic of food justice and race and religion really centered on my own desire to, to you know, figure out how to eat in a way that I thought was in alignment with my values. As, my, as I understood and began to understand more how our domestic and global food system was interconnected and who was suffering in light of that. And so my original idea for the book was just to kind of lay out all the facts and be like, okay, this is, this is the, everything that's happening. This is kind of what's wrong. And this is what we should do um, about it, you know, to begin to solve it. Uh, but as I shared that manuscript with uh, friends and colleagues and, you know, the press, um, I got a lot of pushback because it felt to them very, um, you know, like I was talking down to people or, you know, like I was coming from a position of uh, an outsider um, trying to critique and push back on like black people in general, the people of color specifically, you know, like in their diets. And that wasn't the case for me. This was so personal. 
And so I just decided to um, change it up and really be honest and be vulnerable and talk about my own struggles and journeys and talk about my family. Like I talk a lot about my own family and the poverty and suffering that we had. And, and so I originally did not plan on writing a book where I was as vulnerable as I decided to be. Um, but I felt like it was the only way to tell the story, right? And so much of food is wrapped up in stories. And I just felt as though in writing it, it felt right. Like I was like, this is a good turn for me to make this narrative approach, this storytelling approach. I think people can really understand and resonate with it, regardless of what background they have. I think everybody can connect with a story about why we eat the way we eat. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, you made the the right call from my vantage point, you know, <laughs> reading it as, a, as an academic, but also as someone who's really interested in these issues. Uh, I think it made the book accessible, not just to academic audiences, not just to, you know, religious audiences, but to, to a, a wide array of audiences. So I, so I think uh, it's good you wrote this book. Um, but I want to get into some of the subjects here. So, you know, Madison, Wisconsin, it's a pretty white town. You know, you're familiar with parts of the Midwest. Uh, it's a pretty segregated town. So for listeners who may not really know, or maybe who never wanted to ask, uh, what is soul food? And uh, how did the idea of soul food become a thing? Yeah, so I would say the way I define soul food, and there's a few different definitions, but broadly speaking, I would say this is going to get you in the wheelhouse whoever with, you, with whoever you talk to. Soul food really is the culinary practices of Africans, black, you know, black people that descended from African slaves practices that were honed on plantations and in kitchens um, and really refined um, mostly through women um, and types of foods that they would cook uh, that we had access to as poor black people. Um, and in this sense, um, I think it's important for us to note that what we find practicing or what we find when we learn about the history of West African foodways is there is a way in which these enslaved folk were trying to develop ways to sustain themselves and feed themselves that felt like home, right? Like um, one of the things I write about in the, in the book is, you know, if, if you were on a slave ship and you're responsible for feeding slaves, you have people coming from multiple perspectives and places, I should say, not perspectives um, in West Africa and their diets are slightly different. And so whoever was cooking had to find ways to cook that could get everyone to eat. And you have people who are resisting eating because they're resisting being enslaved. Um, and so really it's this amalgam of a kind of broad West African diet that kind of connects with a broad array of ethnic tribes that allows them originally to feel like home, to take them back to home. Um, and then as it moves on and evolves, it kind of maintains that same essence, right? This idea of eating that allows us to be connected to not only our ancestors, whether they be West African or ancestors that were perhaps Southern for those of us who are moving North, um, but a way for us to feel as a part of a community. And so at, at its core, it's really foods that are cooked and prepared by Black people that kind of maintain this tradition, right? This history that tell this particular kind of story. Um, and so in that sense, it's not limited to um, specific foods. I know a lot of us think, oh, you know, collard greens, soul food, you know, but if you have, you know, friends that are African-American or black from North Carolina, what they eat there is going to be different than my family, what they ate coming from Louisiana. Um, and it's still soul food. It's, it's just different because it's contextual. And so that's why I really focus more on the types, like the kinds of foods that are cooked, that are regional, who's cooking it, the purpose, the story that goes around with it, that really captures, I think, a lot of the essence of what soul food is and, and what it, I argue, what it still should be. Yeah, I think uh, uh, that that's a, that's a great explanation, and it, it also helps uh, to kind of open it up a bit, maybe from how people are thinking about it. Uh, and I want to return in a little bit to uh, some of these uh, these uh, West African traditions that made their their way to the U.S. But I I guess I want to get in a little bit to the kind of premise of of the book a little bit too. And so you write in your introduction that food should be a, a part of our conversations when discussing race and racism. Um, this is one of the central premises of your book, and uh, I'm wondering, you know, why do you insist on this? What's kind of the the kind of big picture uh, of the need for that claim? Two primary reasons. One is um, that we have to remember, I think it's important for us to recognize that Africans, Black people, were brought here um, as enslaved to grow food. Like, it's, 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 we are deeply tied to the agricultural production um, in America. And, and, because of that, 
um, that indelible link, I think, serves as a marker consistently in terms of how our food system has been structured. Um, and so our American domestic food ways were designed to keep foods artificially cheap by not paying labor or paying labor very, very little. And that, that, that is still taking place today. Like that same logic, that same kind of colonial, British colonial logic is still at play today when you look at even when we have passed acts that are supposed to change this, like the minimum wage laws that were passed, right, um, in the um, like 30s, uh, what we find is people who work in food services and in food ways, um, their wages are able to be even art more artificially suppressed than others because the people who work in those jobs are people of color. At that point, still predominantly black, but also an influx of Mexican and Asian, depending on what part of the country you're in. Um, and so food has always been, food production has always been wrapped up in race in America. Uh, and often we, you know, it's also designed for us not to notice it or see it, right? Like it's kind of behind the scenes, they're in the kitchen, they're maybe bringing the food. And so it's, it's easy to overlook um, unless you're actually paying attention for it. And so that's why I think it's important because it's really a part of how our food system developed and evolved by maintaining a kind of racial caste, a racial hierarchy. Yeah, I think uh, that's a really helpful way to put that. Thank you for for clarifying uh, that. And we'll get into some of the uh, details of that as we go, because I have some more questions about that. Um, so one of the other big things in, in your book that I wanted to talk about at the beginning is, I guess what we might call the tensions between the animal and the human. And they play out in a variety of ways in white Western colonial thought. Uh, and will you explain why addressing that tension is so important to your thesis? And I know it is in many ways, but if you give uh, listeners a sense. Yeah, and it's also one of the more challenging and complex um, things to address, quite honestly, in terms of, um, because when you're talking about issues of race and racism, uh, especially people of color are sensitive when you talk about animals, because there's this conflation, like people think, oh, you are... Um, I'm not an animal, or why are you trying to compare my suffering to an animal? And I think it's important for me to clarify that that's, I'm not, in that sense, comparing the suffering. But what I am doing is kind of pointing to a, a broader, um, we might call it a logic or a broader way of how um, European white people saw others, whether those others were um, human others, but not white, or not male, or not straight, right? <laughs> others in that broad sense, like they are not like this universal I, um, or others who are animals, uh, non-human animals. And so what we see here is the same kind of um, exploitative practices that are, are used in this shift to industrial agriculture that are used um, over this increase in production. Basically, we move to industrial agriculture. You see this increased exploitation of non-human animals that mirrors increased exploitation you see happening to bodies to actual human beings. And so what I try to make clear in the book is that this is, you know, these two things are deeply connected um, through the history of the ways in which race works in this country, through the history of, again, racial caste works in this country, um, the history of eugenics and how Black people weren't were seen and understood as either legally less than full human or on a scale, right, of what it means to be a full human being, right, whereas Black people and women and the people, you know, were less than full human beings. And so I'm trying to draw attention to is this tension of what it means to be human and this other that takes place both with animals and with non-white men. Um, and that's where I think it's helpful for us to understand that the oppressions, while not the same, are operating from the same premise, that people who are not like me can be exploited for my use. And the me in this instance are those people who were in power at those particular times. Um, and that's, you know, it, as I lay it out in the book, I try to really walk people through slowly and simply so they can see how this makes sense. But it's not uncommon or unknown when you read literature from people from other countries or you read feminist literature. Um, an amazing book is like The Sexual Politics of Meat um, by Carol Adams. You know, books that basically really say, like when, when, when women are assaulted and they say, well, I was treated like a piece of meat. Like there's this animalization that takes place. And then when, you know, police officers or other folks, like when they do something or somebody, something happens to black people, they're like, oh, they're behaving like animals. And what I make clear in the book is when someone says you're behaving like an animal, they know that you're not part of this they know you're part of the species homo sapiens, 
what they're arguing is that you're not behaving in ways consistent with their understanding of human and their understanding of human is rooted in this kind of preservation of power, um, you know, of, of Eurocentric power. And so that's the, the line I'm trying to draw people and, and I'm inviting them in a sense to, you know, redefine what it means to be human. And that may be farther we can talk about later, but, you know, I'm not trying to say everyone's evil. I am trying to say that we have to re-envision what it means for us to be human in ways that are deeply anti-oppressive and full of compassion and solidarity. Well, I have to say, I, I love that you mentioned Carol Adams' Sexual Politics of Meeks. That's exactly what I was thinking of when I was reading. And I, but I think the some significant differences is, uh, you know, one, Adams doesn't have a much of a racial analysis at all. I mean, it's really kind of, you know, man, woman. And um, so, and it's an older book. I mean, it's like 25, 30 years old at this point. Um, but I, I also thought you could uh, mark the the difference in tone. And so uh, I think you're, you know, in feminist writing of a certain era is, is not exactly invitational in the same way uh, that I think uh, your book is. And so um, I think it would be interesting to see the two books read alongside each other because the, they're, they're a parallel track of, of argument, um, but in very, very different ways. And so I, I love that connection. Uh, so you're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM in Madison, and we're talking with Professor Christopher Carter about his new book, The Spirit of Soul Food, Race, Faith, and Food Justice. came out last year from the University of Illinois Press. Uh, join the conversation. Give us a call in Madison at 608-256-2001, extension 9. Post to our A Public Affair Facebook page or tweet us at Wart Talk. I also wanted to just take a moment and uh, remind folks that Madison is home to a, a number of soul food restaurants. So Mago gets the, you know, what uh, Professor Carter wants us to be thinking about, but just uh, shouting out uh, Marie's Soul Food, uh, Sista's Chicken and Fish, uh, Just Veggies, which, by the way, Christopher is a vegan soul food restaurant in Madison. So, uh, you know, if there's others I'm forgetting or you want to shout out uh, your soul food restaurant, again, give us a call here at 608-256-2001. We'll get your comments on the air. So mentioned here that we have a vegan soul food restaurant here in Madison. Uh, and most people, as you note in your book, associate veganism with whiteness. But in your book, you're advocating for what you call black veganism. Uh, so what is this? And can only black folks be black vegans? That's such a great question. And it's probably like the obvious question. I think to ask when you read it because of the phrasing. Part of the reason I should say that I had to develop a term that would recognize that the kind of veganism I'm calling for is distinct from a veganism that we traditionally understand, not just that's practiced, one might say, by white people, but also that one that doesn't take, a veganism doesn't take seriously the, the marginalization of people. Um, and so, you know, I should note, like, my wife is a veterinary oncologist. I love animals. Animals are great. But I didn't move to becoming a vegan. And this was a process over time. I wasn't one of those people who, I'm not one of those, what we might say, militant vegans. That's just, and you could pick that up in the book. Like, that's not who I am. Um, but by, for me, connecting the experiences of my grandfather growing up in Mississippi as, like, you know, as a farm worker and the kind of exploitation he experienced, you know, in the 50s and 40s with the experience I see of migrant farmers today pushed me to really change my dietary habits um, to say, how can I opt out of these systems of oppression, right? And, and factory farms, unfortunately, are one of the ways in which we see a kind of dramatic exploitation taking place. I would like to invite people. Um, it's hard for us to find out what exactly what happens in factory farms for lots of legal reasons, but there's an excellent article that was published in the New York Times a long, quite a while ago. Um, called At the Slaughterhouse, Some Things Never Die. And it really does a good job of kind of tracking the marginalization that takes place in those spaces. And, and for me, becoming a vegan was more about um, people. I always said, like, I'm vegan for people. It wasn't because, again, I have no problem with animals. I love animals. But I wanted to do my best to opt out of systems of exploitation that were harming people of color, whether it be through labor practices or environmental practices. Um, these spaces and how they harm not only people, yeah, but they harm the planet, they harm the communities that are around those spaces. And it calls attention, um, kind of like, I would say, borrowing from bell hooks, it's like kind of a consciousness raising, right? When you use that term, it forces us to think critically about these intersections in ways in which just saying vegan doesn't. And so, yes, I, I would argue that anyone can practice black veganism um, and when you do it and you're not a black person, you will have to explain what it is. Um, and so I think, uh, for me, I think that's 
brilliant because it allows people to be like, okay, this is why I'm, you know, because it's not just about the animals. It really is about the system that we've created that enables um, an exploitation that we often render as invisible. Um, and so that's the purpose and goal of trying to um, promote this term that I should say was created by uh, two friends of mine by the name of Af and Silco um, in their book, um, Afroism. Yeah, thank you for that and for that that uh, citation as well. So one of the things I appreciate about your book is the the journey you take us through to to get us to your position. And so you kind of start, you, you put your cards on the table at the beginning of the book, but then you bring us through a long journey uh, uh, to get there. And so uh, we won't have time to get through a lot of it, but I, I thought there was just so much rich, it's not a history book per se, but there's so much rich history there. And so maybe we could uh, talk through some of these key moments. Um, and so one of the things you mentioned already, and I want to dig into a little bit, was some of the, the great knowledges that West Africans brought with them. Uh, and and what were those knowledges? What were the, the kinds of foods we're talking about and, and the things that they brought to the, to the literal table? Yeah. So I think, you know, one of the beautiful things, and, and part of the reason I love this question is it allows us, I think, to kind of... Um, challenge some of the dominant narratives and stories about um, the enslavement of black people. And I began to think about this somewhat differently growing up and spending summers with my grandparents in rural Michigan and having my grandfather have a garden, not really going to the doctor, but having like these various herbs and things he would use when he got sick or when he got, when I got cut or anything like that. Um, and as I learned from him, these are things that I was passed on to him from his mother and from his mother's mother and so on. Um, and that kind of started this curiosity when I was a teenager. And then in college, I'm doing research, what I come to learn through visiting plantations and reading these um, documents, um, firsthand documents written by enslavers, where they were very specific about where they would purchase slaves from, right? So they were very clear that if they were, for instance, I should say, like if you were in the Carolinas, most likely you were purchasing slaves to grow rice, and most likely you were purchasing slaves from the Senegambia region in Africa, because they grew the same kind of rice that was grown, that it was imported to North Carolina. And so these Africans brought with them the agricultural techniques, the uh, irrigation techniques, like basically all the intellect, the agricultural acumen to grow this food. And so often one of them, and this can be done also for um, cattle raising, for cotton, for any number of other items that you find on both sides of the Atlantic. And so the dominant narrative often is that black people were enslaved because of our docility or our ability to just be hard workers or our ability to withstand the sun in ways that white people tend to not be able to. Um, but that's actually uh, a half truth. If anything, it's, 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 it's not even half. The dominant reason we were enslaved is because we know how to, we knew how to grow food in order that these people could survive. We had the agricultural technology and acumen. Um, and to me, that was like a revelation, right? That allowed me to um, kind of reclaim agriculture and gardening as a part of my history, rather than to kind of just sit in the trauma of enslavement, right? Of feeling like gardening or growing food is wrapped up in enslavement. I'm like, no, 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 this is actually ours, <laughs> you know? And for me, that was tremendously healing and powerful. And, 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 and I believe, um, you know, that's, been, that's really crucial to the beginnings and the establishment of this country. Yeah, it's so powerful. I mean, I, I was just, it was wonderful to read and, and it was stuff I didn't know. And I, I, I wonder if we could focus in on a couple of foods in particular, uh, maybe uh, okra, watermelon, and black-eyed peas and just talk a little bit about the significance of those. Yeah, so those are, are three foods that principally were brought over um, that obviously have a lot of, you know, within American context, a lot of racialization that are wrapped up in them um but okra i mean first of all i love okra i just like, I love okra fried okra is my favorite um you know when i make gumbo you use okra because it's a, a thickener um but what you saw is these women were uh, black women um or state they had seeds they put seeds in their hair um and brought them over and that's how when um they were enslaved and they were growing food they had their not only did they have to grow food for the enslaver, they would have their own side gardens and often be responsible for feeding themselves to an extent. Um, and so in these side gardens, they started growing okra and that's how that got popularized. Um, and oh, again, so that comes straight from Africa. Watermelon, you see pictures of um, uh, watermelon um, in, in um, tombs with pharaohs. And so we have this ancient um, 
uh, food that we again brought over with us or black women brought over specifically um, that it's not only nutritious and not only tastes good, but also is really important for when you're working in those hot conditions. Um, and so I think those two foods are ubiquitous within black culture. Black eyed peas is something I grew up with uh, as a way to celebrate the new year, right? It was fundamentally just what we were eating something like this on around new years to really uh, be about good luck um, and ushering in a new year. And, and, and I think it's a part of the reason I love talking about these foods or even learning is it allows us again to feel connected, right? And in, 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 in a time when I think it's easy for us to be, see ourselves as individuals. Um, I think soul food really has and continues to have this power to help us find ourselves within this kind of space of community and solidarity. Um, and there's always stories that go along with, you know, when we eat those kinds of things on those holidays. And so it's, um, so for me, those are like three of my favorite things, not only to eat, but also to cook. And the just deep, you know, African history, West African history of these, I think it, it is important for people to recognize too that where, where they come from in that way. So you've mentioned a lot about women and women carrying um, on these, um, the seeds in their hair and, and the traditions themselves. And I want to re return to that specifically in a minute. But uh, you also mentioned in the book that uh, maybe surprisingly to some listeners, it was to me that a lot of the cooks in plantations were actually men. And uh, you tell a really fascinating story about Hercules and James Hemming. Uh, will you share their stories here? Yeah. So Hercules, um, I mean, you can call him Hercules Washington. I mean, he was a slave owned by George Washington. Um, but uh, there's various pseudonyms people will use. But um, Hercules was, in a, he was literally the first executive chef of the White House. Like, because he's the first, the chef for the first president. Um, and so you have... And, and what this does for me, this just, it runs counter again to the narrative about the intellectual inabilities of black people, right? That the first president of the United States would entrust his whole dining operation to this black man. Um, and, and, but, but that's what happened. And that's what he was able to do and really facilitate everything and really became one of, we might say one of the first like chefs in terms of the, what we would use that term today um, in America, even though it was, he was a slave, ultimately escaped. George Washington spent years and just thousands of dollars trying to find him was not able to find him and wrote in his one of his books like it talked about how it was to the detriment of his family basically that they lost this one slave so that's how important he was to that unit um James Hemings is is, is somewhat different the name the last name probably sounds familiar be, with respect to um Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings so James was Sally's brother Thomas Jefferson brought uh James with him to Paris when he was over there during uh his time as Secretary of State and um, that's where he was trained in French culinary school. And so James Hemings, black man, was really the first French trained chef in America. Um, created a few different um, items that we eat today that are, we would think are pretty standard fare within um, American dining, like macaroni and cheese is something that was created by him that brought to America. Um, and his story is somewhat sad because he ends up um, committing suicide um, taking in his own life when he comes back because he is set free um, when he comes back to the States because essentially he's so marginalized. He's not able to really cook and practice in the way he wants to his craft because of the racism he was experiencing, which he didn't experience to that same degree in France. Um, but you have these pioneering figures in, in, in black culinary traditions that again, aren't really known, you know, so much of, I think what I'm trying to do in the book and what I think we need to do is, is, tell a more fuller picture of our history, right? Not to erase anything, but to add, to give us more complexity and understanding of how we've come to where we are as a country, as a people, and as a community. Yeah, I think the book does that really well. I, I, I learned a ton um, in the historical parts in particular, but you know, throughout the book, just a, a lot of stuff that I, I don't think I would have ever heard of otherwise. And so it really does a service in that regard. Um, what, one of the other things you talk about is uh, the way that uh, an idea about Black women's culinary skills came to dominate the U.S. imaginary uh, in the Reconstruction era. And I, I wonder if you talk with us a little bit about how, how that manifested. Yeah, you know, post-enslavement Reconstruction era, what you see is this shift of the ways in which Black people, broadly speaking, are um, racialized or the ways in which the construction of black identity projected upon them by you know the dominant white culture and so it shifts from being this docile happy hard-working slave to this um lazy 
untrustworthy, shiftless um, slave, you know, black person. And specifically with respect to black women, it further marginalizes them to the confines of just domestic work and saying like, this is what you really should strive to do, right? Like this is really what the, the highest value you can have is to be a mammy, right? And we see this image like Gone with the Wind and things of that nature. Um, and so mammy imagery, whether it is in syrup <laughs> or whether it is in other forms that we see in popular culture uh, becomes very, very um, explicit um, as a way both to project a certain kind of, again, um, ideologies around who you could be, but who you should try to be and what you could possibly achieve. Um, and I think this does such a disservice. Um, it disservice isn't even a strong enough word. This creates kind of a, what we might call not only a trauma, but a traumatic retention with respect to cooking, um, particularly for black women. Because you have the way in which the kitchen becomes this space of forced labor where you can come to the kitchen, not as a way to really experiment and show your love for your family um, and, and really kind of refine your own craft and just experience the joy of the stories that perhaps are passed on to you. It becomes just, again, forced labor. Um, there's assumptions placed around your abilities in the kitchen and things of that nature. And so what I'm trying to argue for throughout the book, um, especially, you know, is, is the ways in which we have to kind of reclaim the kitchen as sacred space um, through like healing ourselves from these narratives by presenting these counter narratives that often allow us to add more complexity specifically to the lives of black women who were, um, who were those cooks and the ways in which they provided for the family and showed love for the family and the way they were more complex human beings rather than just people who were just cooks. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I mean, I think, you know, when you said before that your return to black veganism is about it's about animals, of course, but it's about people. And I think that's really what these histories just evidence so wonderfully and uh, help us to really see kind of how we've kind of gotten here um, in, in, in really important ways. Um, just uh, again, folks, if you're listening to a public affair on WORT 89.9 FM in Madison, we're talking with Professor Christopher Carter about his new book, The Spirit of Soul Food, Race, Faith, and Food Justice. It came out last year from University of Illinois Press. Uh, if you have a question for Professor Carter, please give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9, or post to our Facebook page, Public Affair, tweet us at Wart Talk. Uh, we'll be happy to get your, your questions or, or comments on the air. We have just about 20 minutes left here in the show. So I, one of the things that's in um, your, your, your book is about uh, the... The controversies, I guess, historically over soul food as a kind of broad term, right? And so uh, that it's you're you're not the first one to kind of bring this up uh, from the inside or the outside. And and I thought it was interesting the section when you talked about Elijah Muhammad's book How to Eat to Live, uh, and the sort of attendant class divides within the Black community as they related to the concept of soul food. Would you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's um fascinating and challenging i think um for me because this is something that uh, i mean you know i'm black so the whole book is personal but i've also been i'm in a generation of my family me actually is a generation of my family that's first that's been able to transition from like you know poor to like you know actually solidly middle class and so as much as i've had to navigate this um racial hierarchy in america um, particularly in my profession the class dimensions, even my own community has been, has been interesting in terms of um, how people eat and the ways in which eating can be about performance, depending on who you're in front of. Um, and so one of the, uh, you know, things I talk about in the book is, is how, um, you know, people, black people, especially from certain classes, you know, may have been taught not to eat certain things in front of white people, like chicken, like watermelon, um, because it gives off the impression of a kind of lower class kind of person. Um, and the ways in which um, this idea, again, of going back to what it means to be human, like I said, this idea of we have to project a certain kind of dignity to those in power so that they can see us and accept us, right, as for human beings, rather than being accepted for who we are, for our own traditions and loving ourselves and not um, performing what it means to be human, right? And, and this goes both ways, right? For white folks, I have to think of themselves as the kind of ideal 
universal perfect human so a lot of this is wrapped up in religion but also just wrapped up in kind of colonization and enlightenment thinking um elijah muhammad's book was so powerful and popular because i think what he was able to capture is the ways in which um the beginnings of kind of like fast food um targeted black communities i mean this is we still see this today right like he just was, he just saw it he was like this is what's happening <laughs> he's like you can't eat these things they're trying to poison you um and and in that part of his argument is fundamentally correct like i mean there's a way in which you still see these commercials and there's many books you can read about this the ways in which um fast food in particular targets communities of color and poor communities um and and how that food is is deeply um um unhealthy uh, but also at the same time, how they take advantage of the fact that these families are so busy, they may not have time to actually cook, right? You know, I mean, this isn't like, so I want to be clear, like, I'm not trying to write this book as a means of judging anyone or, or saying, like, you have to eat this way to be good. Um, I really try to walk a line of recognizing the challenges of what it means to grow up poor and be poor and try to make this space. And it requires people like myself to do work to change these systems so that people what I argue in the book is that we should try to create a world where, um, you know, systems are at the service of life rather than life being at the service of these systems. And that's just totally inverts where I feel like we are right now. Um, and so, so, so yeah, that's, that's kind of the, the, the requirement I would say for people like myself who find themselves in positions of privilege to create the world that we know we want to live in that empowers people to be able to eat the way that is in alignment with their values. Yeah. And related to this, I thought, uh, one of the important moves in your book, and I think others have maybe made this this move too, but I wanted to hear you talk about it, which is uh, you argue for a shift away from talking about the concept of the food desert to talking about food apartheid. Uh, will you explain why you use that term, food apartheid? Yeah, um, and you're right. It's definitely gotten more popular, as I was saying, in the last like five years. Um, I first came across the term um, reading uh, about uh, the peasant activists in South America. Um, and they were really clear about um, not importing American terms and creating their own. And, and one of the things they argued was that um, what we see in terms of, of hunger in a lot of these communities is a, uh, is a direct consequence of histories of segregation, of redlining, of, of social and political policies that marginalize communities. Um, and so in this sense, because a desert is like a naturally occurring phenomenon. It's just like, it don't happen. So like no one wanted to, you know, people, um, like no one wanted to create the Sahara. It just kind of happened, right? <laughs> you know, Whereas in these spaces, it's very clear. It's very much part of the plan. It's very much a consequence of deliberate action. And apartheid speaks to that kind of deliberate action um, that creates spaces where there is food insecurity. Um, and, and, and so I think using appropriate language is going to be crucial for us, right? Because often we get wrapped up in a kind of language evasion, you know, where we speak in the passive voice, but there is no one that's held accountable. Um, and usually that's because the people that could be held accountable are like corporations or dominant, you know, things like that. Um, and so using appropriate language, I think, is really crucial for us to to begin to create ideas to solve problems. First, you have to know who's responsible for the problems, right? Well, in shifting a little bit on that, but it's all, it's all related. Um, you know, I grew up in rural Nebraska, so it's like agriculture central, right? Uh, but we use that term agriculture, even though largely what's happening there is uh, agribusiness, as yep. as you discuss. And so I, I wonder if you talk about that shift too, and in, in the concept of agribusiness, you mentioned this a little bit earlier, but dig into it a little bit about how that kind of shapes uh, this this entire food system and structure. Yeah, thank that's Carmen. That's such a great question, and I think this is interestingly, I will say, um, this is the part of my book that I found that has resonated with by far the most diverse audiences. Where I've given talks at like southern rural universities, where I'm the only black person there, but they are digging the book <laughs> because what I'm trying to do is make explicit exactly what you saw. Um, this is corporate theft. <laughs> like that's what's taking place in our food system. And so again, being from rural Michigan, seeing these farms become corporatized, exactly what you described. 
in, in the process of, of what happens, there's this shift between this shift from the kind of small scale, medium scale mom and pop farm to corporate farming. The idea behind that was that eventually these farmers could be able to make enough money, they wouldn't need to be subsidized. Like, so to be fair to uh, the government officials who thought of this plan, I like to believe their intentions were good, but it did not work, right? And it hasn't worked and it's consistently not worked. And actually what's happened is we have to increase the, sub, the increase the amount of money that they're getting. Um, and, you know, it's, it's fascinating because, you know, the language that we use, you know, when we talk about things like the food bill doesn't really, um, we, we don't speak about it the same way as we talk about like things like uh, WIC or food stamps. I mean, but both of them are entitlements and we're giving an entitlement to a corporation versus entitlement to poor people who are hungry. And people argue about giving entitlements to poor people who are hungry, women and children, and not argue about giving entitlements to these corporations who've bought up all these farms, who've drastically reduced wages, who have hire farmers that are local that have to grow food in ways that they don't want to, right? Because they know it's actually not good for the earth. They have to pay people wages that they don't want to. These are people in their community, but they don't feel like they have any other option, right? Because they're in a system that's structured um, to where it squeezes every cent out of them that goes to corporate profits. Um, and that's why we have such a huge, you know, high rate of an epidemic of farmer suicide in this country. And like people don't know, like, like farmers are people that are committed to growing food. Like they love what they do and that's their identity. And so when they struggle to produce enough food to be able to pay these exorbitant fees for having these certain kind of seeds or pesticides, like it creates a particular kind of, of trauma that they carry within them, this kind of shame and guilt. And to be honest, we don't really know how bad the epidemic is because you can make so many things as like an accident when you're a farmer, you know? And as opposed to it being legitimately counted as a suicide. But we do know that it's one of the most dangerous occupations we have in America. And, and so as much as you hear the rhetoric on both sides, I want to be clear, on both sides of the aisle, you hear rhetoric about supporting farmers. They are really talking about supporting corporations who grow food, but it's not supporting farmers. And so we have to radically re-envision our food system that decorporatizes it, actually. It empowers local communities. And then I think we will see a shift to a, a more healthier way of growing food because it impacts their specific communities. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, as you see me get excited because like this is, for me, is like, I'm like, this is such, it, to me, it's uh, what we might call interest convergence. I'm like, we all benefit from this regardless of where we come on the spectrum because this is necessary for our survival because of the consequences of global climate change and everything else. Like we have to change how we grow food um, or, or else. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I couldn't agree more. I was just kind of on a side note. My, my grandfather was a small mom and pop farmer uh, in Nebraska, and uh, he never joined the farm subsidy system uh, very intentionally. And uh, he used to keep a record of the sal salaries from subsidies that all the, you know, farmers, large farmers in the uh, area made because it just enraged him. So this system, and what, for exactly what you're talking about, he knew what it was doing to the environment, what it was actually doing to the way that we raise food. Um, I think it's a thing that a lot of people don't think about. Your book just does such a great job explaining what is actually really, really complicated. And so um, I really, really appreciate uh, that you did that. And I was going to ask you about the suicides. I'm glad you mentioned it. And then tie it back again, to just to kind of put a bow on, uh, you know, the complex parts of your argument. But this also then goes back to the issue of worker justice, whether it's in the fields or in the slaughterhouses, uh, and who is, you know, um, doing that work, who is expected to do particular kinds of work. And I think you even mentioned that, you know, certain bodies are assigned to certain types of work within the slaughterhouses themselves. I don't know if you wanted to, to elaborate on that. Yeah. And so you have, and, and thank you for sharing a story about your grandfather. I mean, that's like, you know, I think, again, that's why I say it's so important for us to, to create different narratives that actually show and tell a more holistic history of what actually happened. Because again, I feel like if people knew this and really knew this, like we would do things differently. Like we would demand our government do things differently um, because people in their souls know that this is not, not only not right, but there's a better way that we know there's a possible another way to do this with respect to growing food. Um, in these factory farms, yeah, what we see is a particular kind of hierarchy that's still present with respect to like, you, you'll have like black men or indigenous men, um, you know, usually doing the heaviest kinds of slaughter, the bloodiest kinds of work, the most difficult kinds of work. Um, you'll see women 
um, especially in hog slaughterhouses where they're, you know, required to like be like the chitlin cleaners, like the pig intestine cleaners. Um, and then you'll see like white men that are like folding boxes, you know, if they're on the floor, if not they're in management. Um, and we see this kind of hierarchy that's present still. And in the most recent case that is just um, egregious is what happened in Waterloo, Iowa. You may be familiar with this, where there's a COVID, when COVID-19 happened, there's a COVID-19 outbreak and there is literally a managers at that plant, Tyson Foods plant, had created a gambling ring where they were betting on literally who would get COVID um, on the floor, um, you know? Uh, and I think that's the kind of, um, dehumanization that takes place where they were like we need to avoid this space because we don't want to get covid but we're going to take we're going to gamble on who gets it to see who gets sick and that's just um that's insane and and that i think is the kind of thing we're trying to critique is this, this logic of dehumanization that allows us to separate ourselves from the way they grow food i'm like no this is we're all wrapped up in this because we all eat yeah so we have just about six minutes uh, left in the show. Uh, again, if you uh, want to join us or the conversation here on a public affair on WORT uh, 89.9 FM, give us a call at 608-256-2001. Go to our a public affair Facebook page or tweet us at Wart Talk. We'd love to get you on the air here in the last couple minutes of the show. So uh, I have, you've probably noticed most of my questions have been about the first part of your book and, and, and less about the kind of theological uh, implications, the ethical implications of your book. And that just speaks to my own bias, I suppose. But I did uh, want to ask you, um, you, 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 one of the questions you posed in kind of thinking about what it means to be human and being human as, as, as praxis is uh, whom do we want to be and become? And so I just want to ask you to, to, to meditate on that question and its significance to you um, in the book. Yeah, it's um, and to, to your point. I mean, I think, um, you know, I couldn't not include religion because for me, Christianity is so deeply embedded to who I am and it also informs how I live. Uh, and the version of Christianity that I practice, I would say, is closer to the religion of Jesus. And for me, that guides this kind of notion of who we're called to be and who I want to become for me personally. But also, I think for us humans in general, in terms of you know, what kind of story do we want to see ourselves living out? Um, you know, what kind of community do we want to see ourselves be a part of? And how do we live into that? I think so often the idea, we think about what do we want to have? You know, like human beings, like, oh, this is what I want to have, or maybe even what I want to do with my life. Um, and I try to invert those kinds of questions and focus more on being because I think if we focus on the moral formation of who we are called to be, that will influence and shape and guide our doing, right, in ways that are actually about love, justice, and solidarity, rather than focusing on the outcome, right? I want to focus on the process um, and continue to revise that process um, so that it's better reflective, again, of the values that we hold. And so... I talk about being human as practice, as praxis, as a means of being really clear about what it means to grow and evolve as a human being, rather than just saying, starting with this assumption that, okay, I'm this good person. Well, okay, what does that mean to you? Let's unpack that. How might we live this out in more reflective ways? And so, and so yeah, that, that for me is kind of um, one of the guiding principles towards the end of the book in terms of how my behavior, how I talk about how we could eat differently and do things differently. Yeah, it, uh, it 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 does that work, and uh, I was I was I was pleased to read that. I actually was a religion major in undergrad, and so, you know, uh, thinking some of these terms as well. Um, one thing I wanted to to, to mention for for listeners uh, who who might want to buy your book is that uh, one of the ways I think that you clearly anticipate some of the pushback that people might have against the idea of black veganism is uh, your your inclusion of several soulful vegan recipes. Uh, at the end of every chapter, there's a recipe. And of course, this reminded me of Jessica Harris's uh, book, My Soul Looks Back, and she does that. Uh, and it also made me think about, I don't know, you've probably seen this, that Tabitha Brown has just gotten the first uh, vegan food network show. She just kind of signed on to do this. She's you know a black vegan. Um, and so I guess uh, the, the question is about what, uh, you know, thinking about how to shift in this way, um, you know, what was the significance for you of really giving us some concrete ways to do this? Yeah, I, it's funny, I was having a conversation with Bryant Terry a few weeks ago, and Bryant is a friend of mine who's a black vegan chef, and I told him, um, you know, he literally probably saved my life because I had to figure out how to eat when I decided I wasn't going to eat meat anymore. <laughs> and, I had to, and so, uh, but I, need to eat, I needed to eat in ways that felt like me, you know, 
And so I think um, part of the reason I offer these recipes is to give people kind of a pathway, um, you know, to follow about how can I still eat in ways that feel like home? Because one of the challenges you have, I think, as a person of color transitioning to a vegetarian or vegan diet is this idea of community and belongingness. And so I want to let people know that the kinds of foods that you would call so food as have always evolved. They're not specific, right? They've always evolved. And at, it, at their core, they're really about the preservation and promotion of community. And so the things we eat today that we need to eat that actually preserve and promote community are going to be different than what we ate 50, 100 years ago. And that's crucial. Um, and so that means that not everybody can be vegan or vegetarian, and that's fine um, because we haven't created the necessary opportunities for people to be able to do that. Um, and so that's kind of the, the, the reason why I include those recipes. And I love to cook, you know, to be honest. And so that's like one of the things, too, so I can slip those in there. So we do just have maybe about 30 seconds left, but I did want to ask you because part that I didn't get into was about sort of doing your own food production. And so just kind of a personal question. Do you, do you grow your own garden? Actually, I do. Uh, the garden this year is on pause because I'm moving from San Diego to Los Angeles. Um, but I've already started tending to the soil, the place where I'm moving to L.A. Um, and so, yeah, no, gardening is gardening and cooking for me are like peace. You know, <laughs> they bring me peace. Yeah, I'm I'm totally with you. I'm a big gardener, uh, big into food production. And so I just wanted to get have that personal moment at the end. But we are uh, at the end of our hour and we're gonna have to leave it there. Uh, our guest today was Christopher Carter, who's the author of The Spirit of Soul Food, Race, Faith and Food Justice. It came out last year from the University of Illinois Press. Thank you so much for being here today, Christopher. Thanks for having me. And uh, thank you, Madison, for listening today. Thanks to Rochelle for producing the show. Thank you to Nate for engineering. Uh, I hope everyone has a great rest of their week, great weekend, and get out there and enjoy the nice weather. Uh, I'm your host, Karma Chavez, and this is A Public Affair. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground, another pirate station. We bring the truth to places truth is never heard before. We bring the sound communication of our tribal war. Dark vision fly by helicopters in the night. Attempt triangulation of our station in the fight. Straight from the base, deep down, low precision. High crime treason, we broadcast in sedition. Like the Wall Street morning, afternoon edition. Commandeering airwaves from unknown positions. Live and direct, we come and never be recorded. With information that would never be reported. Disregard the mainstream, media distorted. We come and listen and supported.